From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is Trini Dalton. I'm currently living in Los Angeles. I'll be reading today from Sweet Tomb, a novella about a witch named Candy. The section I'm reading is called Gardener's Anonymous. It's from the middle of the book, and it's when she decides to leave her candy house in the forest for the big city with the help of her hallucinated friend Pinocchio. Gardener's Anonymous My ghost was who she intended to be, a perfect version of myself. I used to have a see-through side. My ghost was a prism, only appearing when I most craved love. She followed me around, hoping my solid self would someday become someone great, so we'd be able to unite. The ghost would never again have to slink outside, embarrassed by my failures. But as years rolled past, and the ghost saw that the same desires I had as a child were still pressing, she tagged along, worrying about how the past affected the present and how it inevitably would affect the future. My ghost thought that I sucked. She thought I'd never be legendary. It's difficult to explain how your alternate can live both in and outside of you. I'm effervescent and can make anything happen. That's the ghost. I'm incapable of loving and magic is a hoax. That's me. Usually fears haunt you, and ghosts are the failures. But this was the type of ghost that eggs you on. Staring at flowers exacerbated it. You'd never think yard work dangerous, and it took ten years of gardening overkill for my first apparition to emerge. As a child, my mother read me stories about wicked queens who mirror-gazed until their vanity destroyed them, so I kept only one small cosmetic mirror for hair-combing on special occasions. I didn't want to be limited by my reflection. I wanted to base my definition of beauty on how I believed I looked, not how a piece of silvered glass perceived me. Besides, a witch's look is flexible. It hadn't occurred to me that tending plants could unconsciously become a narcissistic hobby rooted in the insecurities I'd worked hard to overcome. I was settling into my candy house, maintaining the nougat fence posts, clearing leaves out of the honey resin rain gutters, shoveling debris out of the rock candy fireplace, and replacing lemon drop roof shingles as needed, like a responsible witch homeowner. Years flew by, each passing faster than the last, all dedicated to yard work. I mowed, weeded, composted, mulched, and watched sprouts turn into trees that now provided the property a leafy canopy to ward off summer sugar meltdowns. Each season, I had generous harvests of kale, tomatoes, carrots, potatoes, pumpkins, beans, beets, and turnips, perfect for Christmas pickles since I didn't eat produce. Eventually, I questioned why I was compelled to grow veggies. One morning, I was pulling volunteer mint sprigs out of the lamb's ears patch when I noticed Pinocchio leaning against the barn wall, slumped across my shovel. His face was bloody, and the blood dripped down my shovel's handle. I considered halving him with the obvious implement, as if the bloody shovel foreshadowed his killing. He would make nice wood chips for the path I'd just dug through the herb garden. Snapping out of murder mode, I realized somebody was bleeding to death and ran over to help. Are you okay? I asked. A sanguinary film obscured the lenses of his eyes. Water, he murmured. I turned the hose on its most gentle spray setting and squirted him. As red ran into the soil, his tan skin emerged, then green later hosen and black boots. 
Instead of a nose, he had a hole, as if he'd been shot. Are you Pinocchio? I asked. I cut it off, he said. I carried this damaged doll inside, wrapped him in towels, laid him in an armchair, and fed him fresh butterscotch. As he fell asleep, I noted his youth. In human years, he looked seven, but with his face, hair, and outfit painted on, he looked five. While he slept, I meditated on this disfigured puppet visitor. Pinocchio awoke four hours later. I was sick of my nose growing, he said, starting conversation over a cup of jelly bean tea, so I amputated. Pinocchio's violent ghost, come to teach me something. I tried to piece it together. Where do you live, I asked. I'd rather be dead, he said, than live in that puppetry studio where any dude can come in and pay top dollar to borrow me as a sex toy. I may be wooden, but... To escape his brutal life as a xyloid prostitute, Pinocchio borrowed one of Geppetto's hand drills and cranked away until a dowel fell out of his face. He wanted to scar himself so people would leave him alone. It took hours because he was teak, a difficult-to-carve hardwood. Since he hadn't taken himself to the emergency room for stitches, he had a chronically oozing wound. He'd run away, planning to die in the forest where he could decompose in peace. But he'd survived, homeless in the woods for the past six months. When he lost too much blood, he stumbled around semi-conscious, after sleeping in stream beds or ravines. His surface was marred by beetle trails and termite holes. He's real, I decided, buying mental time to decide whether or not Pinocchio was invited to stay. I didn't want a zombie house guest. It was hard to believe that Pinocchio had been having sex since he was a toddler. I was almost jealous. I decided Pinocchio had found me because we had something to give each other. Not sex. Why else do people meet puppets? It probably wasn't love. Was I fated to marry a fairy tale character missing his proboscis? Maybe it wasn't that complicated. Daily, I tended Pinocchio's hole with peroxide, gauze, cotton, waterproof tape, and butterfly bandages. The wood around the puncture was stained dark brown and was pulpy from constant wetness. I tried tightening the hole with waxed linen, but thread pulled his face taut, which gave him headaches. He reluctantly let me clean him with iodine. I couldn't figure out where his blood was coming from, but during a crisis, gore takes over. Weeks passed, and I thought in vain about how to get Pinocchio medical help. If I took a marionette to the doctor, they'd confiscate him and institutionalize me. Another month went by, and I was overcome with frustration. I'll cut my own nose off, I thought one morning, as Pinocchio lied on the floor bleeding onto a rag rug I'd made from vintage witch gowns. Getting mad makes it worse, he said. His voice sounded wooden when his consonants knocked against one another. It had aggressive resonance. Pinocchio was right. When I was livid, he bled more. Why do you bleed when I try to help you, I asked. Are you even real? Oh, I'm real, he said. Take me outside. I'll sit against the barn and watch you garden, like before you found me. It hadn't crossed my mind that Pinocchio had been watching me before I found him. Creepy. Had his hemophilia been fertilizing the yard? I carried Pinocchio outside to lean him against the barn wall. Pinocchio watched me pick eggplants. As the sun dried his blood, his expression softened. 
He grinned like a cartoon lobotomy patient, and brick red, crackled, crusty lines of blood were caking onto his face. I tried not to look at him, instead picking up a pitchfork to dig potatoes, then tossing them into a basket. It was nasty to think that his bodily fluids had nurtured these tubers. The harder I dug, the more my stress melted away, though underlying this relief was the old, familiar need to escape. I remembered Chad, in his pre-feline form. I hadn't felt trapped since then. I disliked the ineffectual doctor role. I called my kitty. A shiny black cat emerged from the green bean vines. See this cat? I asked Pinocchio. He used to be my boyfriend. Is that a threat? Pinocchio asked. No, I said, you're already a doll. Saying this aloud made me wonder what the danger was. But then I remembered a standard witch obligation. If you abandon a sick child in the forest, you'll be permanently cursed. I'm trapped, I said. I can't heal you and I can't abandon you. I told Pinocchio about how Chad depended on me for food and how I used to be constantly sick from blood loss. Sometimes, Chad drank several pints, but I let him because I couldn't watch him starve. I turned him into a cat, I said, but he was still harsh, so I changed him into chocolate. Looks like a cat now, Pinocchio said. Chad wandered up to sniff Pinocchio's painted-on shoes. My biggest fear is of eating friends, I said. What good was a chocolate boyfriend going to do me? So I changed him back. Pinocchio sat up from his slumped position, looking at my veggie basket. Why do you grow these, then? I told him a story. When I was nine, my mom took me for my first and last checkup because I couldn't advance into fourth grade without one. Curing ailments with herbs and magic didn't register with Pink City Elementary's bureaucratic headmaster. Candy cannot come back until her vaccinations and checkup are current, the Cyclops told my mom. Kids called the nurse Cyclops because her glasses made her eyes merge into one immensely magnified eye. But I'm not sick, I said, holding my mom's hand for support. You certainly aren't, Mom said, handing me a cookie from her purse. Still, she scheduled the visit. During my doctor's appointment, Mom filled paperwork out. Dr. Maurice came in, read the chart, and said, Candy's never had shots? Shots make you sick, Mom said. Never had a cold or flu? Mugwort, feverfew, and slippery elm cure those. Her dietary record is blank, Maurice said. I eat candy, I said. Dr. Maurice told my mom that he'd approve me, but a few weeks later, Child Protective Services intervened. I had to eat vegetables for six months straight, charting my intake. I guzzled green juice. Mom cooked broccoli. I needed sugar and got sick. I was absent for the beginning of fourth grade, missing the section on pirates. It wasn't my fault that I got a C on my pirate report. I love pirates, I said, ending the tale. Pinocchio nodded sympathetically. How do you live on sugar alone? I don't know, I said. Don't you need protein, he asked. I remembered Nathan. I'll never touch meat, I said. And you? I eat, Pinocchio said, but eating trees to me is like eating meat. I had never heard such a gentle claim. Chad and Pinocchio were really different. Chad was a vampire and Pinocchio was an innocent boy. But from there, logic crumbled. 
or rather, I thought, a doll who wants to be a boy, telling me how much it pains him when people eat greens. This was absurd. He had to be a figment of my imagination. He was too weird to be true. I was imagining him because I needed someone to care for. I imagined someone younger than Chad because I had a motherly urge and it was more acceptable to shower a child with excessive love. Chad was nice, but he was a cat now. Pinocchio, I asked, how do you breathe? I don't, he said. But you bleed, I said. It was hard enough believing that he could bleed, but to bleed without breathing seemed extra unlikely. Pinocchio didn't melt like some witches do when you pour water on them. Nor did he shed his Pinocchio body and morph into an incubus. Rather, he collapsed into a lifeless shell, reminding me that I'd been talking to a puppet all along. I made a small grave for him in a meadow frequented by bears. Maybe the bears would exhume him for use as a chew toy. Thus, I'd battled my first ghost in a sense in one, after acknowledging my motherly instincts via hallucinating Pinocchio and passive-aggressively growing vegetables. The vegetable chapter in my life came to a close. I decided it mentally healthier to cultivate colorful flowers. Pinocchio had been a surrogate son constructed of three fears. First, that I'd mistakenly turned Chad back into a cat and that keeping him as a pet was cruel. Second, that having a baby would be 100% sacrifice and that I'd be a terrible mom. Third, I had spent most of my childhood mad about being brought into this world and I was a jerk to consider having a baby. But even witches have a ticking biological clock. Gardening flowers would suffice until I could reap the rewards of motherhood. Chad never wanted kids, plus we were so young when we dated. Until I could find a man who'd be into fathering a witch, I wasn't going to give in to the easy options, a virgin birth or growing a baby in a head of cabbage. I can have a baby, I thought, anytime, anywhere. I can go into the supermarket, buy a rack of lamb, and turn it into a baby. Or I can make it rain babies. Or I can even easily ask a deer to deliver onto my porch a baby in a basket. But I had major problems with this. I felt it was cheating the baby, that a baby needs more than one parent, and I recalled how having a single witch mother drove me nuts. Who was my father? I was ambivalent about whether or not witches should even have babies, seeing as how each witch genetically passes down the curse. Just because I can have 50 babies here within the hour, I thought, doesn't mean that I should or that I'll be a good mother. So I started a new garden, planting every variety of flowering plant I could find. Zinnias, bachelor buttons, cosmos, alyssum, clematis, daffodils, crocus, and ten kinds of lilies. I enhanced the poisonous plant section with datura, nightshade, and mandrake. I thought of Pinocchio from time to time, feeling glad that I never had to clean his gross wound again. But sometimes I missed him. During those fleeting moments, I called Chad and pet him fervently. I was pathetic. How could I be lonely with all these plants around? The yard was an enchanted jungle, and half of me appreciated watching the transformation. I planted morning glories, poppies, ginkgo trees, lavender. I had three rows of sugar cane, from which I brewed witchy cola. I dreamed of pages in gardening books, of cultivars that hadn't been bred yet, 
I hunted obscure botanical specimens for my collection, as if they would provide the high sugar dosage I needed to stay alive. My other half was disappointed because plants didn't make good kid substitutes. My garden was fear incarnate, fear of motherhood, and fear of not finding someone to love. Plants were reliant, but offered none of the real joys of children. Half of me despised my garden. Nevertheless, over several seasons my garden grew steadily. Vines engulfed the house. Trees were too dense to prune. My hardcore weed-pulling and bird-feeder refilling augmented my escalating sense of desolation. One afternoon, I found in the mailbox an ad for a free Gardener's Anonymous consultation. I'd never heard of this group, but it was auspicious that I'd noticed the card since I usually set junk mail on fire by pointing my broom at it and telling it to buzz off. Witches hate junk mail. I took the card inside and dialed GA's number. The next morning, I dressed in my best purple velvet gown embroidered with nasturtiums to attend counseling. I rode my broomstick to their building, where an inaccurately rendered English ivy mural decorated the wall. Odd that a place where people struggle to stop gardening would intentionally remind patrons of their vice. We at Gardeners Anonymous don't believe in a 12-step approach, the intake man told me. Of course, gardening can perpetuate loneliness, but one must embrace their obsessions. I agreed. I know I am obsessed with my yard. What I don't understand is how something good for the earth can become a personally destructive force in my life. That's a philosophical question, the counselor said. I can only recommend that you hire a gardener and find some other way to spend your time. Big help. But it was in a way, because our chat reminded me that too much of something good is still too much. Obsession is the cornerstone of my life. Fighting ghosts would require further exploration. Hiring a gardener would be merely to bandage my need for human interaction. With this, I flew home and packed a satchel of essentials for my upcoming adventures. I packed more sweets than I could eat and warm fleece things to wear. I said goodbye to all objects related to past traumas, the double boiler in which I'd transformed Chad into chocolate and the bloodied vintage witch gown rag rug. I kissed Chad and told him to man the perimeter. I wasn't compelled to destroy this abode as I had been my childhood home. I left my sylvan landscape, asking the trees to increase their thicket around the property. I'd live elsewhere until I could return, with pain-free love in my heart and some healthy lust. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.